You're fed up with the nine to five. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Hello everyone. Today we have a special guest joining us, Chana Vijasin, FCPA, FCA, board member, chief executive officer and company secretary based in Melbourne, Australia. Chana himself is no stranger to shaping the landscape of ethics in ESG. With over 16 years experience in heading national standard setters, including the last seven as their chief executive officer, He's been instrumental in developing ethical standards for the Australian accounting profession, but his experience extends far beyond borders. Passionate about sustainability, Chana is an active member of the IESBA's sustainability project, working on independent standards. And additionally, he contributes his expertise to various finance-related task forces. So from leading technical standards and development projects. His prior roles have included managing audits and corporate finance engagements for renowned firms like Deloitte and Ernst & Young. Chana's experience is unparalleled, so join us for an enlightening conversation on ethics in ESG as we explore the impact of his global initiatives. So get ready for some valuable insights. Chana, welcome to Business Breaks. Thanks, Dante. Thanks for that uh, very generous introduction. So everyone is talking about uh, SG, uh, and there's a lot of developments occurring at the moment, so it's great to be here talking with you on Business Breaks. Thank you so much, Shanna, and very kind of you to be on the show. I know you're such a busy person. And uh, to get the conversation started, for those in the audience who aren't aware, what is ESG? Yeah, so ESG uh, stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And uh, in the environment bucket, we have climate change, you know, resources depletion, uh, because there's a finite amount of resources in the world. And now we are at a stage that we need to manage that, otherwise we are going to run out of it. Um, and then there's pollution as well, which is contributing to global warming. On the social side, we have, you know, you have to consider human rights, are in modern slavery because certain countries, it's a critical issue, as is child labor and working conditions. Um, on the governance side, we have bribery and corruption, and then ex excessive executive pain, uh, <laughs> and, you know. Uh, the downside of that, uh, or diversity, uh, because research shows that diverse boards perform better than uh, boards uh, dominated by just, let's say, one gender. Then governance also includes tax strategy and, you know, per, uh, paying a fair share of taxes uh, in the jurisdictions you operate in, you know, the Pandora Papers, Panama Papers, those have shown that the downside of not um, paying the fair share of taxes and when you try to stretch the tax laws, so to speak. So ESG is very broad, 
Uh, it's evolving. Things are changing quite uh, rapidly, but it's an area that um, now governments are focusing on due to the global warming issue that all countries are experiencing at the moment. Wow, thank you. And those are all really big problems for businesses and societies in general, as well as economies to get there, get to grips with. Yeah. A lot of it is has far-reaching implications. And probably it means that you have to be more than just financially motivated when you take decisions. You have to think about the bigger picture. Uh, but from your perspective, why are ESG considerations of critical importance to society and by extension to those businesses who are looking to turn a commercial profit? Thanks, Tante, for that question. So recently there was a landmark UN report. It was called Climate Change 2023 Synthesis Report, and it brings into sharp focus losses and di damage that the human race is uh, making uh, to our planet. And if temperatures are to be kept to that 1.5 pre-industrial levels, then we need to make some rapid and drastic changes in the next decade. Emissions need to go down and cut by almost half by 2030 if we have to have any impact on that 1.5 degree threshold. The UN chief, uh, Mr. Guterres, has uh, recently made a climate solidarity pact with the G20 countries to try and reduce the big emitters. Um, and he wants to, like the, you know, earlier there was talk about the net zero by 2050, but now he wants to make all the developed countries to get there by 2040 and then the emerging economies to get there by 2050. And he wants to stop a whole generation by 2035. So given that we are in 2023, there's yeah. not a lot of time left. And I think, I don't know whether you noticed, like on the 3rd of July this year, just you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was reported that the world's average temperature hit 17.01 uh, degrees, which was the highest temperature recorded uh, globally, uh, according to the data from the U.S. National Center for Environment Prediction. So, I mean, we are seeing it now, you know, Europe, Spain, Italy, mid-40 degrees, southern U.S., you know, high temperature, and North Africa has hit 50 degrees. So, we are seeing the impact of uh, climate scientists are saying it's a death sentence unless we get our act together and reduce the, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions. So all of us, I think, have a responsibility to act and uh, contribute to the various government initiatives to reduce global warming. Yeah, and I hear you. It's been in the news, people who have collapsed because the temperatures are too hot being compromised in terms of not being able to go out in the midday. Yeah. And these are things that are, are basically things you take for granted <laughs> yeah. uh, going back five years ago, 10 years ago. And yeah. I, even though, as you say, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned 2050 not being not enough time, not a lot of time. 
but that's yeah. 27 years away and you just yeah. think uh for some people that's that's a long time and for others probably when you think about all the work that needs to get done to reverse the trends that built up over centuries it's 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 a huge challenge and i guess speaking of challenges what are the reporting challenges for finance people in organizations when having to integrate esg into their um into their disclosures so the challenge for the the reporting people such as the finance people whether they are preparers advisors they need to come to grips with the complexity of uh, you know sustainability reporting it's not as easy as the financial historical information um many countries have climate change targets but till recently there was no global reporting framework so it wasn't easy to measure and compare the targets and the so the obvious first step was we needed to get one global framework that is common so before that since about 1997 there are six sort of popular frameworks at the global reporting initiative as sustainability accounting standards board the international integrated reporting council at a task force on climate related disclosures carbon disclosure project and the climate disclosure standards both so these were it was called the alphabet soup of standard setting and so depending on which one you pick it was not comparable and the six frameworks have different target outcomes objectives and audiences which invariably created information gaps and also a bit of i guess you would use the framework that best suited you <laughs> and gave the best you know picture um yeah so these gaps along with the observed reporting practices of cherry picking and reporting selectively provided a strong rationale for a, for a global reporting standard that leverage off some of the existing frameworks so uh, that's where in december uh, 2020 the IIRCSSBCDP and the CDSB and GRI call for closer coordination and in June 2021 the SASB merged with the IIRC uh, to create the value reporting foundation uh, so IFAC has also been focused on the sustainability reporting information and how to deliver global consistent comparable assurable sustainability framework and then they supported the creation of the international sustainability standards board the issb under the auspices of the first trustees so um that has become that was a pivotal moment uh, in the esg journey um and um in november 2021 the first foundation established the new international sustainability standards board or the issb and then the issb was entrusted with establishing a global baseline a disclosure system for sustainability related information in march 2022 issb launched the consultation on its two proposed standards s1 which has the general requirements for disclosure of sustainability related information 
and then S2 has the climate-related disclosures. Um, so going into S1 a bit, that sets out the general framework for disclosing material information. So we are talking about material information, not all information related to the entity's sustainability-related risk and opportunities, as they call it. It uses the concept of enterprise value, uh, which is broader than the information reported in the financial statement. Uh, it includes information about the entity's impact and dependencies on the people, the planet, and the economy, and uh, when relevant, an assessment of the enterprise value. Then S2 focuses on the climate-related risk and opportunities, incorporates the recommendations of the TCFD, so they are trying to integrate some of the frameworks and includes matrix related to the industry classifications derived from the industry-based SASB standards. If S2 requires an entity to disclose information about the climate-related risk and opportunities, that could be reasonably be expected to affect the entity's cash flows, its access to finance or cost of capital over the short medium or long term. Um, and as you would be aware, in uh, late June, so just last month, the ISSB finalized S1 and S2, and now they have been issued to the market. Um, the effective date will be 1st January 2024, so that's just six months away. Um, and uh, I think people don't have a lot of time. <laughs> to get ready, but it's also, they feel it's uh, like we are not going to get, um, you know, 100% right from the beginning, but we need to start the journey somewhere. Um, and so this is a start. There's, I think, a lot of transitional relief. Uh, in the standard, they're not expecting people to do prior comparatives and so some of the matrix. Um, and you would have heard about scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And the tough one is scope three, because that is, you know, uh, up and down the value chain, you know, things that impact your business. So it's like actually the suppliers' mm -hmm. emissions, which are more hard to get uh, mm -hmm. than your own emissions. And so scope three, there's transitional relief for scope three not to be reported initially. Um, so that is recognition of let's start somewhere uh, and prove as we go along the journey. Um, and the start date, I think, is similar to what the EU is doing as well uh, with uh, HFAC standard. That's, that's huge. Yeah. Thank you for that. And very far-reaching in terms of how do you capture all that information in a way that's meaningful and also... Uh, creates common, a common, shall we say, an even playing field for all organisations that decide to do ESG. Because a lot of it sounds like when I first heard about ESG, I thought there's a lot of opportunity to game the system, as you hi correctly highlighted. There's various flavours of ESG reporting, and if an organisation just decides, let's see how, let's just test all of them, and the the best one will pick, yeah. and we'll just go with. And then that becomes more like virtue signaling rather than actually making a, a real concerted effort to 
improve the business's holistic contribution, uh, not just to uh, not just to business, but also to the community, to society, and to the globe in general. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the thing is, each jurisdiction, the governments will play a part as well, uh, because the legislators will come in and say what needs to be reported, and that's already happening. Um, like, for example, in Australia, they have already issued exposure drafts and sort of suggesting that initially they will take, you know, capture the big listed companies. And there's sort of a phased approach of capturing most of the listed entities and the large private entities. Uh, and I think in the EU, it's similar approach where there's a phased in approach based on turnover and assets where mm. you get captured into the EU uh, reporting on sustainability. Thanks. And then in terms of that information, how can ESG information be assured and what are the challenges? So, for example, auditors uh, who are providing ESG audits, what are their challenges for giving good assurance to stakeholders such as um, investors? So the the challenge for the auditors is similar to the reporting <laughs> frameworks. I mean, the what the accountants are most familiar with is the International Auditing Standards Board's uh, assurance standards. And there's a standard 3000 that has been used even before, like uh, it's been used for the last 10 years by various people because some people wanted to report on some matrix. So they have used that standard. Uh, and additionally, there's uh, the International Organization of Standardization, or ISO. Mm-hmm. They have a set of assurance standards. <laughs> there's another group called Accountability. They have a set of standards. So yeah. there are different assurance providers as well. So uh, what the IASP has done is uh, they will shortly issue a sustainability assurance standard. It's, as I say, 5,000. Mm-hmm. which they have looked at the existing material and in a sense repurposed it to an extent. Uh, but there is, you know, obviously a bit more uh, based on what the ISSP has issued as well because uh, effectively the criteria that you're assuring will be the ISSP standards. Uh, so uh, I feel there will be like... Uh, different levels of assurance in the sense that the IASP standard would be the toughest one, while the other ones uh, will also be required, but maybe, um, and in in a sense, the more work you have to do, there's a cost, right? So an audit under the IASP standards is probably going to cost you much more than one of the others. So, uh, the one of the reasons why the IASP standard is probably going to be more strict uh, is also it incorporates the quality management standard ISQM one, and that and it's uh, a really tough ask to comply with the ISQM one standard, which is the quality management that is used 
for global assurance. Um, and so if you're doing your work to that extent, um, it's going to be, I think that is the reason why potentially the IAA's standard will probably be the gold standard. Um, and also uh, in recognition of the fact that we are in a, on a journey, uh, the ISSA 5000 standard will allow for limited assurance as well as reasonable assurance. So limited assurance is, you know, when you have a review in the financial statement context, uh, you know, when you do a half-year review, six months review of the financial information, as opposed to a full-blown audit, uh, which is reasonable assurance, um, the standard allows for both recognizing that in the early years, it would be really difficult for to get get to that, you know, reasonable assurance level. But limited assurance is fine. And then after a few years, once, you know, the data collection systems and everything gets more sophisticated and mature, then we can go on to reasonable assurance at a later date. So recognizing that the standard uh, allows for both to occur, uh, which is quite, uh, quite I think, a positive uh, thing so that you don't have to immediately try to get to reasonable assurance. Because if you try to do that, there could be qualifications, a lot more qualifications the auditor will have to put in because they may not be able to get the same level of audit evidence. Thank you. And it sounds like strategically it might be best to try and get to the gold standard whilst the regulation is relatively, or the auditing, should I say, is relatively light, but you have the prestige, as you say, of saying that you are taking the highest standards of yeah. ESG reporting, uh, but then that also poses an ethical risk, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, you could you might not meet the standards, but if the if the tracking of the, what declarations are made are relatively, shall we say, lightweight, then it's it's probably going to create might be self-defeating if people don't believe you <laughs> what yeah. you're saying and and what you're reporting so i guess to that extent there's the ethics is important and authenticity or integrity and in what you declare uh, should be held to a high standard but understanding this is such a complex topic is it's going to be difficult just in terms of the technicalities to get it right uh, but yeah focusing on ethics and intent the ethical dimension applies to both those who report as well as those who are assuring the ESG information provided by businesses. Why is ethics even more, why is the ethical dimension even more important in the ESG context? So with, with financial information, we are sometimes looking backwards. Um, I mean, when you look at the financial statements, it's mainly, it's already occurred <laughs> in a sense. So it's easier uh, to assure that. Um, and with the ESG information, uh, there's also forecast and targets um, and forward-looking information that you would be disclosing. 
and um, you know invariably with forward looking information comes estimation mm-hmm. judgments um and uh, which are more open to debate uh, and you know clarifications so that is why it's even more critical with the esg information compared to the financial information plus there'll be you know with the with the financial information we now have you know computerized sap ledgers and all of that and it's you know it has gone through centuries right mm-hmm. of collecting information <laughs> and recording while with this uh, you know you would be collecting information maybe on spreadsheets you might have to rely on diff- people from different disciplines you might have environmental engineers collecting some information and so whatever information you get you will have to treat it with some skepticism um, and uh, much more inquiring ra- than compared to the normal financial transactions so it will be a team effort in the sense like the fi- it don't only be the finance team it will be the engineers um you know the people who are working operationally uh, giving you some of the data uh, and then you'll have to sense check it and uh, and also because you're going to suppliers you know how how do you get some comfort or the information that the suppliers are providing you in terms of their emissions so that is why um the ethical dimension is even more important uh to in order to get the um figures as closely right as possible because obviously in the initial years we are not going to be <laughs> it, it will be a tough ask but as long as it's reasonable you know it's close uh in terms of the matrix and the other thing would be you know we talked about executive pay at the beginning mm-hmm. and increasingly some of the kpis uh that are being put into senior management will be esg related and then if there's a lot more judgment involved there it also creates a incentive to in a way massage even <laughs> the numbers to get the outcomes you require um so um and even on the ethic side uh, the ISB is working on a exposure draft which uh, which has a timeline of end of this year uh, but in terms of the assurance uh, it's expected that you are held to the same high independent standards as if you were an external auditor of the financial statements so there's not going to be an opportunity to arbitrage uh, on that uh, on that aspect because the uh, audit of uh, esg information will be held to the same standards uh, as uh, those, uh, of financial statements so it, it's a uh, it's going to be interesting time because uh, even if a exposure draft now the iasb is going to issue the assurance exposure draft which cross refers uh, to the ethics standards um but uh, the isbas uh, standard will only uh, exposure draft will only be coming out 
end of this year and the overall uh, overall plan is to get those completed by uh, the end of 2024 so that's sort of the project plan and nobody can sort of say what will happen <laughs> so that's just uh, those are some project objectives uh, but it will also depend on the stakeholder feedback uh, to the processors and uh, Given these are global feedback, you know, the timelines could could change uh, in the passage as we get along the um, get along to 2024. So a lot happening in the space, and I think we'll keep finance people busy for quite a while. But in the sense, if you know, we need to hit the targets set by governments, we need to measure it as well. And so finance people are in a very good position to measure and report the progress uh, on how we are going along the ESG journey. So it sounds like there's an opportunity for finance people if they to upskill and look and become effectively specialists in ESG reporting. As, a, as an extra credential potentially in terms of yes. being experts in coming up with a solid report on how well a organization is performing on those ESG aspirations, I imagine. Sounds like that's where the future is heading. It's not just about reporting financial numbers. It's the more holistic view of the business beyond just commercial impact. It's social and global impacts, would you say? Yeah, that is correct. Because, I mean, I think now various education institutes are coming out with ESG, you know, short courses, certificates, diplomas. I think there's even some universities have masters uh, in ESG as well. So I think it's, uh, it's going to be the next wave and if finance people get on board, then that that will be. Uh, I mean, you have to get on board because I think you can't avoid this. Oh, it's compulsory, isn't it? The yeah. way you're talking, it's gonna be it's gonna be mandated. <laughs> yeah, within six months. <laughs> yeah. So uh, and um, so I mean, the governments will come on board uh, and legislate. So then that means, like for companies, it just becomes mandatory. And invariably, the finance people and accountants will be drawn into it. Uh, the natural place for this to reside as a reporting a report would be with the CFO. I mean, it could re- reside with top chief operational officers as well. Uh, but ultimately, it may reside with the CFO in time. Um, and the long-term goal is an integrated report where the financial and ESG is reported in one report. Um, and that's probably, you know, once we get through these um, changes, that might not be too far away um, in having one integrated report. Uh, sounds interesting. And, you know, reporting is always a minefield of getting it right versus... <laughs> And how do you define getting it right? Is it getting it right as in you're doing the right things or getting away with something 
Um, forgive, uh, forgive me for putting this in a personal story. Uh, about a decade ago, I was talking with an, uh, a CEO of an investment bank. It was a dinner conversation. So I hope he's not listening to this, but he mentioned he was involved in investment properties and he was saying proudly, declaring proudly we're carbon neutral. And one of the other dinner guests said, so how did you do that? Did you count your supplier's carbon footprint? He said, no, we didn't. <laughs> didn't have to. And so obviously <laughs> carbon neutral was easy to report because everything was um, was with subcontractors, right? So um, there is that element of, you know, how do you get it right? As you alluded to with S1, S2, S3 reporting. Uh, but uh, I guess there is another element. Sorry. I mean, and I think this is sort of goes to your story, goes to greenwashing. Uh, uh, and I think now the regulators are getting tough on greenwashing, you know, making claims and they're not being able to back up those claims uh, on, uh, you know, emission reductions. Um, recently in Australia, they were about, I think, the regulator took action uh, on, I think, maybe over, over 10 companies got. Please explain sort of what is for the various claims that they have made. So greenwashing is also an issue. And that, that also goes back to when you have multiple frameworks and when comparisons are difficult. So the work of the ISSB-based, I mean, now they're sort of opened offices all over, but originally they were based in London. But I think now they have opened office in Frankfurt. Uh, and and they also think I think they may have even opened in Japan, so they have multiple um, offices. I think there's one in Canada as well, if I'm not mistaken. So I think it's uh, that's sort of showing that. Uh, and for all of those uh, instances, there has been some government support for them to open offices in those different jurisdictions. Um, the same support couldn't be obtained for the accounting, auditing, or ethics standards. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you could say that now, you know, the governments are serious and mm -hmm. they know that they need to deal with these issues for the benefit of the generations to come. Yeah, I think it has to be incentivized. If you misreport, it should be a criminal, should have criminal uh, implications, should we say, sanctions, etc. And I mm -hmm. think to an extent there will be. Imagine being unable to do business because you've uh, you've misdeclared your uh, your uh, your social your ESG credentials yeah um, and I, I was going to go on to a flip side of that having good reporting and then being a socially should we say environmentally environmentally efficient uh, socially responsible uh, company with good governance, you would think that there would be some financial incentive because it should mean that you, because you hold yourself to a high standard, you'd have to perform at a high level as well. Yeah, I think some some of the um, and some of the good companies um, do have high standards, and then also you get mentioned in certain lists, like uh, in Australia they have a tax governance. Reporting, uh, and you know, which is uh, compiled by the Australian Tax Office, 
and uh, they give the top 100 companies in terms of uh, you know the tax disclosures uh, adherence to the tax law and companies try to get into that top 100 because that shows that you are complying with your tax governance requirements having a fair share and you know the tax office is recognizing you as a good corporate citizen yeah so it's not all about greenwashing <laughs> which is yeah. funny actually because uh, it's, it's hard to really you get a lot of skepticism and there was one thing that was pointed out to me uh, you know investors and credit rating agencies they're starting to get on the esg bandwagon as you said yeah and standard and pause I, I was checking their esg scoring tool and it's funny for me, I, I, I struggle to understand how British American tobacco can have a higher ESG score than Tesla. And they actually blitz them in terms of the environmental impact. And you think, well, people who, who smoke cigarettes, how is that better than electric cars? <laughs> yeah, it depends on what framework you use. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And honestly, BAT... So, you know, they had a score of 85. Tesla had a score of 37, if my memory yeah. serves me correctly. So, is, it, is it because Tesla consumes a lot of energy? Could be. Might be yeah. scale. Might be a yeah. question of scale. But yeah. when you compare electric vehicles versus combustion engines, so BVs versus ICBs, mm. and you just wonder, isn't the net impact uh certainly from a climate perspective better yeah. than say at, although as you say there's there's other things that people would claim would be negative about tesla because batteries consume a, a whole load of minerals that are mined in a certain way that may be may have ethical questions around them in terms of the countries that they extract those minerals from so i yeah. guess it's there's probably a story behind that as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think uh, when uh, Volkswagen was reporting good ESG information until, uh, you know, they got caught to that diesel gate scan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, diesel gate, uh, that's what killed the diesel engines, I think. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I guess... Uh, what I'd like to do now, just quickly, uh, is to break down each, maybe a question on each element of ESG. So starting with environment, environmental uh, so issues such as climate change and carbon footprint, um, what do you think are the challenges of integrating climate change into your financial reporting? In a way, people have been doing it the a little bit with the operational and financial review or management commentary, where sometimes they would uh, talk about it. Um, I think it will be a journey uh, to integrate it because, um, as I said, capturing the emissions data and particularly scope three could be uh, challenging. Um, mm. And initially, there might be more scientists or engineers involved in capturing the information. Um, but over time, I, I think there could be integration. And that's why I sort of said, you know, once these things get settled in, 
ultimately with its 10 years down, down the track or 15 years down the track, the goal is integrated reporting where you can mm. produce one report which integrates the uh, financial and the ESG information uh, because in a sense, the while the financial information is a bit backward looking, uh, the ESG information brings that forward looking uh, information into it that uh, the entity or the board has thought about the impacts of the environment, society, governance, mm. all of that. And in a sense, you're also a more sustainable organization because you're thought about it. There are strategies in place. Uh, I mean, when you look at S1 and S2, uh, it talks about who in your organization is responsible for this. You know, you, you need to identify who's responsible. Then you need to talk about what are the strategies in place for you to deal with these issues. So those are quite a lot of disclosures you need to work through, but it's not only the disclosures, you need to have things in place (laughs) (laughs) to address those issues. It's like any sort of forward-looking report. It's a forecast. It's It's a best guess on future performance. And if you're too optimistic, you may think, well, I've missed the target. Let's just roll forward the difference. But if you keep missing the target and rolling forward indefinitely, you're always you're never going to hit that target. Sometimes well, it, I guess yeah. it's a fine balance between you know setting a challenge and actually managing expectations. Yes, that's right. Thank you. And then on the social aspects, so uh, as you mentioned, human rights, employee compensation, community engagement. Uh, what are the ethical obligations of businesses to be socially responsible and make sure you have a, I guess one of the challenges I, I kind of struggle to get my head around is how do you, how do you, how do you craft a, a, a holistic picture? Because decisions, when you talk about society, there's that element of diversity and diversity of preference. What's good for one group of people might not be considered good for another group. And how do you measure those trade-offs where there's probably ethical considerations either side? Do you have to think of, I guess, sorry, I I won't answer it, but I think I know where I'm going with that. But what what are your views? (laughs) How do you find, do you find trade-offs in that when you're deciding what is, what is social responsibility? I think with social responsibility, you have to think carefully. Um, mm. I think it's not a thing that you could <laughs> do trade-offs uh, in <laughs> a sense. Um, I mean, in Australia, we have had a situation where quite big companies have been caught out not mm. paying the correct you know, rate because there are awards. And um, I mean, we are not talking about companies that could sort of say oh, we want a resource we're talking about large you know top 50 listed companies who have all the resources they need yeah. and still getting it wrong and even the reserve bank came out recently and said they got it wrong <laughs> so it's you know it's i don't think it's acceptable to get get that wrong you know contractual periods and um, 
I mean, we are talking about more on the, you know, the more developed countries. Uh, but, uh, you need to be mindful of your supply chain as well. If you're getting goods from developing countries, think about child labor. Uh, you know, is there conditions akin to slavery in some of the, you know, countries where you're getting goods from? Mm. Uh, so because the repercussions is, you know, you could get a fine, uh, but let's say, you know, you are the financial resources to pay the fine, but the reputational damage on the social part could be huge um, because um, uh, once your reputation is damaged, it's hard to uh, get it back. Um, so uh, that that's the issue. If you try to trade off, I think the penalties and the reputational damage could be quite significant. And I guess, you know, I've seen it in business a lot of the time where the trade-off is a trade-off and they think, well, can we get away with it? And if mm -hmm. we can, let's just go for it. Let's take the reputational damage, pay the penalty and just carry on as we are. So that's probably a challenge is, are the actual, uh, are the actual um, punishments severe enough to actually warrant the behavior lo you're looking for? I remember... Um, uh, this is a while back, watching a video on, um, sorry if you, you don't mind me mentioning it, but it was an Australian mining company and they were making huge profits by extracting uh, resources from the land. But there was also an indigenous community in that area that had been, you know, moved aside, shall we say, resettled yeah. in order to enable this mining company to continue mining. But there was no no reparations paid, yeah, no compensation paid to the indigenous people. So I guess is that something that needs to be reversed, or actually is that being built into those sort of standard settings that um, if companies do that, and I guess if you're a mining company and you don't have too much competition because these are commodities essentially, and there's no when it's uh, B2C, then you know consumers can vote, but when it's B2B, uh, there's no obvious way to yeah. see how, uh, say, raw materials that have to be reprocessed multiple times can actually be, uh, shall we say, boycotted. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know whether you're talking about the example. Um, is it Rio Tinto? There was an issue of... Um, they actually um, also, they had to, let's say, clear an area which was sacred. Um, yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Indigenous community. Uh, and although repeatedly the indigenous community said, please don't do it because there's tens of thousands of years of history in this location, they went ahead and did it. Uh, subsequently, once the government got to know about it, there was pressure and the CEO had to step down, the chairman had to step down. So, you know, there are repercussions of not taking into account. But the damage was quite significant because once you, you know, um, use explosives and, you know, clear that area, you can't get it back. That's, you know. Yeah. That's gone, so it's a very sad state of affairs. Yeah. 
And I guess this is what we want to avoid those negative implications and yeah, trying to yeah mitigate the incentive to take those actions that could otherwise yeah damage legacy for future generations because that's the yeah. thing is that you know uh, on the sort of like the bigger picture as it were we want future generations to be able to enjoy the luxuries enjoy we had as well yeah 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 we'll have a better life ideally <laughs> <laughs> thank you and then finally on the governance side so there's uh, as you mentioned diversity and executive accountability because we don't want just because you're the top person in the organization and you can decide things you don't want to be just suddenly paying yourself an extortionate wage whilst keeping your employees in just above the poverty line um, yeah. i guess what are those challenges of implementing effective governance and how can esg reporting address that in a way that makes sense so i think with the with the governance and executive pay this is where the board needs to have accountability and the boards have a role to play uh, in ensuring that, you know, uh, proper incentives are there and it's not the incentives are not short term, they're long term. And I think increasingly um, I have seen that they are sort of staggering even the share options. You don't immediately get it in the first stage like coming in year six or seven yeah. Yeah. Uh, so i think uh, now it's getting a bit more sophisticated and more long-term incentives are given rather than the short-term uh, yeah. incentives i mean there was a interesting story that happened just uh, earlier this week um, <laughs> um there's a inquiry going in uh, going on in Australia about uh, the big four firms and the PwC tax scandal. But uh, interestingly, so this is a public public hearing and the Deloitte CEO was asked by a senator, can you explain to me why you are worth seven, seven times the Australian Prime Minister? <laughs> and he... <laughs> He actually then said, like, he can't explain. Then, <laughs> so he sort of said, uh, he said in a way he gave a negative answer, and then he tried to claw his uh, way back by sort of saying, "I don't determine my salary, and I'm benchmark against similar roles I played in other organizations." Uh, but it's sort of. Um, I think that's why market-driven is good. You know, such a yardstick, as that senator pointed out, um, sort of shows that sometimes the commercial things have probably gone a bit too far uh, when you compare against other roles in the public sector and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think the boards have a critical role to play in governance. I mean, there's bribery and corruption uh, as well. And, and, um, and then also on the tax, you know, not trying to create um, entities in tax havens and tax <laughs> pricing and moving things yeah. through low taxing jurisdictions. 
so um, I think it's all when you look at the whole E and the S and the G, it's about making uh, informed and decisions which are uh, more, I guess, balanced yeah. um, and for the benefit of society. And so if you have the historical performance as well as the ESG outlook incorporated, you will probably make more sustainable decisions which will contribute to the longevity of the organization. It makes sense. And, um, you know, businesses, it's all about resource allocation at the end of the day, but on a grander scale than an individual organization and how you distribute all those, all the wealth within a society. So it's it's interesting how you mentioned those various aspects, and especially I like the idea of executive pay being more longer term in terms of those um, uh, executive bonuses because I never understood how you could suddenly make a massive, you could get like a, com, uh, a bonus payment three to four times a, a very generous executive basic compensation salary, uh, but not have actually done anything in that immediate um, in that immediate period that could could benefit the organization in the long term because at best you're just window dressing at worst, you know, you're actually crippling a business in the long term just to dress up the performance in the immediate term. So that's so those short term actions need to be avoided for or switch for more sustainable decisions that benefit a business and it's 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 gonna be interesting to see if that if that shows through in how corporate decisions are made. You know, things like um getting rid of staff when revenues are down rather than seeing what what can be done to grow grow revenues yeah. because it could be a short term blip, but if you take a knee jerk reaction it costs you more to replace the staff when yeah. uh, the market picks up again. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think we experience it uh, in the accounting profession. When mm -hmm. COVID happened, you know, the firms cut back. And then once COVID was over and activity picked up, they had real problems recruiting yeah. staff um, and then had to pay premiums because... Uh, um, now it's better, but at that time, the migration has not come up back or people, you know, coming in to do two-year stints. That was not happening. So they had to really pay premiums to uh, attract mm -hmm. staff. So that was sort of a knee-jerk reaction, which um, within 12 months, uh, people are probably regretting. Yeah. I mean, that's that's it. It's a false economy. I mean, the hospitality sector, staff compensation grew at an yeah. excess rate compared to the overall economic averages, is my understanding. So, you know, and that's due to shortage of labor because people who couldn't work in hospitality suddenly had to find alternative employment. Some of them probably stayed and didn't come back and then you have a, sh a much smaller labor force when you do need them to return to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and and it comes back to that more longer-term thinking again. So probably those organizations that retain their staff also got loyalty, you'd like to think. Yeah. yeah. 
So thank you very much, Chana. It's been a pleasure and a very insightful discussion. I could go on and on, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, this is... Uh, this has been a nice, uh, nice ending. And then, uh, last questions: If if our listeners want to reach out to you, uh, where would be the best place to connect with you online? Uh, online, I mean, uh, they could connect with me on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. uh, and you can share uh, my LinkedIn uh, address, and they can send me a request, and uh, I'll accept. Uh, and then, you know, if they need something else. Uh, they can message me uh, on LinkedIn. Thanks for the opportunity, Dante. It was a a good conversation, uh, and I think we covered a lot of ground. I think uh, it will give your listeners a lot of of things to think about in the next few weeks. Thank you, Shanna. It's been a pleasure. It's about regulations, but you've managed to link it to some real-world examples, which I'm sure the listeners will find extremely valuable as well. So thank you so much. This has been Business Breaks. You've been listening to Chana Vijasin. Thank you, Chana. Thanks, Dante. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT, and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, This show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.